very nice. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, it's it's obvious by the number of you that turned out that, uh, that there's nothing better on a Friday morning than to talk about violence over a cup of coffee. <laughs> so it's really great to, to see you. And there's obviously a lot of talk these days about about violence and Islam. That's the big, I mean, obviously we've just had the Paris shootings, but the relationship between violence and Christianity is really far from uh, unproblematic, and so this is the thing that I think we need to tackle. Just to give you an example, I think the simplest example is the way that a lot of Christians are responding to ISIS um, in, in the sense that they want to go and bomb Syria and they want to attack, and they think that this is the so-called Christian thing to do. And I want to challenge this. I mean, one of the examples, I saw this little video clip uh, of this guy who is a Christian, so self-proclaimed Christian, who has made an assault rifle with biblical symbols on it. And one of the things he's put on it is Psalm 144.1, which says, Blessed be the Lord who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And the gun has three settings, peace, and then war, which uh, war is when you pull the trigger, one bullet fires. And then the third setting is God wills it, which is fully automatic mode. And some of you are smiling, and then some of you are going, what? <laughs> this is a, po a supposedly Christian thing. And there's a there is this relationship between Christianity and violence that we need to tackle. And it's because the Bible is filled with it. Arguably, if you, if you look just at a statistical level, the Bible is longer than the Quran, but it has more violence in it. It is not entirely a tame book, and I think that only people that don't read the Bible will find the relationship between Christianity and violence unproblematic. So, that, that's kind of what I would say. So, along comes this guy named Rene Girard. Girard is one of my heroes. He is an incredible thinker, was an incredible thinker. He passed away literally a month ago, uh, while I was in California, um, I, I heard the news and I thought it's, it's amazing what this guy has actually started doing in 55 years of, of really solid and conscientious research. He has created a way to look at violence that transforms even our way of, our way of looking at Christianity, but it transforms the way that we look at the Bible. I think this is quite amazing because it's a, in a way it's completely new. But in, in another sense, what Gerard would say is that it's actually quite, it's all there. Everything he's saying, it's not like he's not reading into the text. He's just noticing a few different things in a, a different way. So what he does is he looks at texts, general texts, uh, texts from literature and anthropology and history, for example. And he looks for patterns, the way that sort of things work. And through those patterns, he starts to compare these ancient texts with the texts of the Bible specifically and he starts to notice where there are similarities and where there are differences. These patterns are, well, they're complex but they're rooted in the, the first idea that Gerard kind of talks about is the idea of mimesis which is that desire is borrowed or imitated. Once we understand this, the nature of desire is imitated, we see the connection between human desire, imitated desire, and escalating violence. And how basically escalating violence is humanity's drug of choice. And like, like any drug, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's not something that people choose 
it's just something that they are predisposed to, especially when it's an addiction. Okay, so he notices these patterns, and what I want to pick out are three kind of key moments in, in history and anthropology, and then I want to examine how Gerard unpacks these in order to tackle the, this very difficult issue of the relationship between Christianity and violence. So, I want to start with anthropology. In anthropo anthropology, anthropological texts, you will find that there is, a, there is a pattern. It is this, crisis, killing, catharsis. So, crisis, let's start with this one. So, in anthropology, we find that if you look at even just history, and I'll give you a few examples soon, you find that escalating violence is a massive problem in human cultures. People will, societies, communities, cultures will have this kind of unrest or this unease that will gradually build and build and build until the whole of society is in a state of panic and unrest and just dis-ease. This builds up to a moment of crisis. That's the first thing. So crisis. At this moment of crisis, culture feels like it needs a bit of a release valve. How do we get rid of our violence? That's the question that they're going to be asking. And what they do to get rid of this violence is they select a victim and they kill that victim. They scapegoat this victim. This is a profoundly disturbing act, but it is also profoundly unifying. People in their sort of unrest, their dis-ease, they unify, kill this victim, and then what results is a catharsis. People feel tremendous relief because they're all together and they're all participating in this singular act of violence. Crisis, killing, catharsis. When you look at this structure, you start seeing it everywhere. So for example, you'll see it around the time of the Black Plague. Uh, the plague was going on, it was a very traumatic event for Europe. It actually transformed the, uh, most theologies around uh, the afterlife. That's how traumatic it was. It changed the way people saw the afterlife. It wasn't as big a deal as it was made afterwards. Um, and as a result of this crisis, they scapegoated Jewish people. This was around 1348 and uh, 1350, where they selected the Jews to be their scapegoats a lot of people in Europe, and they killed or persecuted or just tormented Jewish people. The result of this was that they felt that justice was being done, that all was right with the world because the supposed cause of the, the spreading disease was being dealt with. You get other examples, uh, post-Reformation, there was a lot of uh, political unrest, a lot of religious unrest. One of the consequences of that was that witch hunts started to escalate in Europe. There's actually, by the way, so the selection of the victim, this killing of the victim, whether it's symbolic or literal, which, the word witch, is actually etymologically linked to the word victim. It takes a little bit of time to figure out how, but they are in fact linked. Okay, so what happened is these witch hunts took place. Witches were persecuted, witches, so-called, were persecuted. And the result, again, was that people felt catharsis. They felt like, ah, peace is prevailing. We're all okay. Another example would be the uh, destitution of Germany. 
if uh, just around the after the First World War, Germany was in a terrible state because they themselves had been victimized by Europe. That's another that's another story. And so again, they found scapegoats. They found victims to persecute the Jews. And it turns out more than the Jews, they persecuted their own people in in unique ways. So. This is the pattern. You can see it everywhere. Once you see this, you see people unifying. In fact, there's this, uh, I'm sure you've heard, out of many, one. Have you ever heard that? E pluribus unum. This is actually a, a reference to the scapegoat, or could be taken as that, because out of many, one is taken out of the many and persecuted, or that one is expelled, uh, scapegoated in to, to align, I think, with the, the Leviticus passage, although there are actually differences between the Leviticus scapegoat and what Gerard refers to as the scapegoat. So this pattern reveals a number of things. Crisis killing and catharsis. It reveals that violence isn't actually a solution in any moral sense. However, people assume that it is, because there is this unifying energy that is established through this killing, through getting rid of people. Um, so there's that. There's actually, if you look at this, crisis and killing, both are violent, violent components in this process. So with crisis, you have, you have people in a state of violence, whether it's plague or, or literal violence, so they're in a state of violence, and they kill, and that is the violence that expels the previous violence. It arise, arrives at catharsis, but it's, it's an expelling of violence through violence. It is, and this is Gerard's way of reading it, it is Satan casting out Satan. So Satan in Gerard's thinking is a social process, not necessarily a literal being that is constantly arguing with God. Satan is a social process that is cast out by another satanic act. Both are violent, and the catharsis is a false sense of peace. It's a false sense of justice. But this is what people assume is just. This happens, I, I want to point out, in our legal systems. Like our legal systems, are, we think that they are actually peaceful and they're about justice. But they're often just a repetition in a much more structural way. It's a repetition of this violence, of the same thing. Uh, crisis, killing, and then catharsis. We don't see it, though, because law is part of three things that actually conceal this violent process. The first thing that conceals the process is myth. The second is prohibition, or law. And the third thing is ritual. So I want to just tackle each of these in terms of this pattern of, of crisis, uh, uh, killing, and catharsis. Okay, so the first thing, myth. Myths are stories told by people to explain humanity. The Bible con contains a number of these. They are expl explanatory, they're imaginative stories that help us to understand humanity better. Okay? So what they do is they read the same pattern, but in a way that highlights a, a meaning that is not going to affirm the fact that humanity is violent. The meaning is this. In myth, the crisis is taken as the gods are really angry. They are so angry. That's why we're in turmoil. That's what's going on. The gods are either angry with us or they're angry with each other. So if you've read mythology, you'll realize this is a constant refrain. Okay, They're super angry. 
the killing, because it produces catharsis, people interpret that as the gods must have liked this. So they assume that the gods are in fact happy with the fact that someone or some small group of people died. That's what myth does. It covers up the story. The second is prohibition. Again, we think of the law, I think, as a... These days, even these days, we think of the law as a punitive, punitive uh, construct. So the way to get to justice is to punish. The link between punishment and justice is incredibly strong in the Western mind. And I think it's, it's something that definitely needs to be challenged. This also applies, I think, to the disciplining of children. There's this idea that discipline equals punishment. And again, that's very problematic because even when you punish someone, you create victims. This is something that a writer named Robert Cover has explored. Also Walter Benjamin. There's, there's this idea that when you, you, uh, you actually exact justice, you're creating conditions for victimization. Families of, of people that are convicted are harmed. Sometimes the person who's convicted is the reason that they're living. Okay, so what is assumed to be justice is often not. I'm overstating the point, but, but you get it. Okay, the third way that, that this violent structure is concealed is through ritual, specifically through ritual sacrifice. Okay, so again, if you look at anthropology, you see, well, people interpret the gods being angry, there needs to be some kind of killing. So what happens is a ritual sacrifice is established to repeat the process, to repeat the killing so that there is catharsis. It has a similar effect in any case. Society is always brimming with kind of nervous, uh, traumatized energy because they have their issues, everyone does, I guess. They have the issue, so they will find a, a ritual ceremony to, to focus all of that energy on the killing of something. This still produces the result of catharsis, but at the same time, and this is my point, it covers over the fact that culture and violence are the same thing. And that's a problem. <clears throat> what, what Gerard then notices here is that there are actually, this story is everywhere. You, you can see it even in your workplace. You can see the same process, people gathering, picking on people. Gossip is an example of this. It's the same process. But Gerard notices that there is a way of telling the same story upside down. So the one way you can tell the story is that the story is a mask. The myth is a mask that hides the fact that there is a violent process that kind of fuels culture. The other way of telling the story is that it is a mirror. It's something that reflects the violence of people right back at them and says, this is what you are really like. This is not that, it's not about gods being angry. It's about you having a few issues that you need to deal with. Try some therapy or various other things. Okay, so the mirror is there to show us this so the question is, how do we see this process? So Gerard does something very interesting. He goes, well, the reason we can see this process, the reason that we can see it so clearly, is because we have the Gospels. In fact, not just the Gospels, we have the whole Bible. It's Okay, so the way that the Bible reveals this whole process is twofold. The first way is that it actually shows the violence in full force. 
it becomes problematic here because I think the trouble is often we have we have the, the problem of being guilty by association. So violence is the main problem in, in the Bible. The first crime is the crime of murder. And if you read, in Gen that's Genesis 4, if you read on in Genesis, you find it's murder. And then Lamech kills someone and he says, there's going to be serious hell to pay for this. It's going to escalate. And it's escalating violence right until the story of Noah and the flood. And there, God himself, apparently God, I'm going to put that, participates in the human violence. And he retaliates with that same sort of violent force. After that, he says, I'm never going to do this again. So that violence is a, a very, very obvious problem in the Bible, and, and it carries on. You can, if you do a very critical textual study of, of the biblical narratives, you will find that this is true. Okay, so the Bible shows this violence in full force. The second thing it does, and this is very significant, it sides with the victim. So every story that we've encountered in anthropology and in history is a story of the winners write the story. History is written by the winners. So we've heard that, that phrase. Well, that basically means that there are a bunch of people who say, it's actually right that we won. The just and right thing was to beat the little guy up. Okay? So it, that, that's that story. But the gospel or the biblical story is the story of God constantly siding with victims, saying to Cain, I'm going to try and protect you. Um, constantly coming back, siding with Israel. Israel had its issues, okay? Um, and you see the victims throughout the, the biblical narrative, just to name a few. Joseph is one, scapegoated by his brothers. Job, scapegoated by his closest friends through theology. I think that's very significant. It happens still. Um, so there's uh, Stephen in, in Acts, is scapegoated by Paul. Why? Because he follows the law, the letter of the law. The law becomes a violent structure that creates more violence. So obviously, whatever we need to deal with, we need to deal with exposing these kinds of false stories. The trouble is, the Bible is still a problematic group of texts. It's not one book, it's several books. It's a library. I think that would be a better way of understanding it. So I want to read this, uh, this thing from jo uh, John Dominic Crossan. He's got a book called how to read the Bible and still be a Christian, which I think is, is a very good uh, question. How, how do you do this? And it's a good uh, book itself. He says, the problem of the Christian Bible is that its God is portrayed both non-violently and violently. Its Christ, proclaimed as the image of, of God, is also portrayed both non-violently in the Gospels and violently in Revelation. And therefore, Christians are seemingly called to a life of political confusion at best, or religious hypocrisy at worst. How do you solve this difficult tension? And it's there. We like to uh, basically shove the, the violent bits under the rug. But it's, if you're taking the text seriously, which is something that I think everyone should do, you have to see that both are there. And this for me, and it is for Gerard too, why Jesus is so significant. Jesus is there to clear, clear up the mess. 
he says this thing in, in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the question must come to mind, why would he need to even say that unless there was some confusion about who God is? So he presents this idea, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's saying this in the context of a ministry that is constantly raging against violence and against the sacrificial system. Him taking a whip into the temple, which is often used by American fundamentalists to support violence, is Jesus' very vocal critique of the sacrificial system. And he follows a lot of prophets in doing that. They, there's a critique of the sacrificial system again and again. Book of Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 7.21. Jeremiah says, when God, this is quoting God, when I came to you on Sinai, I did not command you concerning sacrifices which is seemingly a contradiction of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus, by the way, is another way that violence becomes overt in the sacrificial process. If you really study Leviticus, you'll understand that it's more, the temple was more like an abattoir than it was like a, a nice place where people sing love songs to uh, their boyfriends. So it's like, so it's this kind of very interesting a thing that gets noticed, this critique of sacrifice. And Jesus is constantly saying, we need to side with those who have been marginalized, with those who have been victimized. That is what it means to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Uh, so, makes sense so far? What clears this up even more is the story of Jesus' crucifixion where you have crisis, you have Rome and Israel in a terrible, violent conflict. If you look at the, the history of this, this conflict, you see Maccabean revolution. You see people constantly, not just at war, but wanting war. So there's this, this tension. And you see this in the narratives of the Gospels, that you see all of this tension gathering around to focus on a victim, Jesus. One of the scenes in that story is the story of people siding with Jesus, uh, siding with, sorry, uh, choosing Jesus as the victim, not Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. That's basically the biblical narrative way of saying, look, people want murder. That's what they really like. There's another uh, moment, Cai Caiaphas, the priest, says, it's better that one man should die than that a whole, man, uh, that a whole nation should perish. Which is biblical speak for, look, the way that we bring peace about is to find a victim to blame everything on. Okay, so that, that's happening. And then the story is that they choose uh, Jesus as a victim. And at, through this story, you have Pilate saying, but there's nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. That's again, narrative speak for, he's innocent. The victim is, is in fact innocent and by the way this is from a, a kind of Christian theological perspective this is God being victimized and how does Jesus respond to this story he doesn't retaliate every step of the way he offers love forgiveness grace healing if it's a Roman soldier whose ear just got hacked off 
which brings about the response that Jesus says, well, if you live by the sword, you die by it, which is not him saying that's a good thing. That's like, that's a consequence of your actions. It's not the way that the kingdom of God functions. So at every step, he counters violence. There is, even in the narrative of the Gospels, there is catharsis. People feel relieved that everything has been dealt with. And there is an alliance between Herod and Pontius Pilate. It's also a sense of like, everyone has unified over this killing. I could go into so much more. I think it's a, it's a complicated body of theories uh, that Gerard deals with. But I think you can start to see, well, there is this pattern, there is crisis, there is killing, there is catharsis. And what the gospel narratives do is they expose this and they get us to ask a number of questions. And so, just to, to put a little bit of this into perspective, what Gerard has done for me, I've been grappling with his work for a number of years now, and it's, as I said, 55 years of work. He worked uh, right from, like his first book that deals with this theory is in 1961, and he passed away in November. So he dealt with this at length, and there are theologians who are grappling with his work. And I think it's really good news. It's actually good news. God is not a vindictive God of vengeance who is just like human culture. I think as soon as we read God in that way, we're, we're in a huge amount of trouble. And so these are a few things that Gerard got me to rethink. The nature of God, which I've just mentioned. So God is not like culture. He is something else. It means also that we need to rethink the nature of the Bible. The Bible is, I would call it, a text that wrestles with the word of God or the assertions of God. Um, so I'm with Martin Luther in asserting that the Bible is not the word of God. It is something that testifies to the word of God, which is not difficult theologically to argue because the Bible itself refers to Jesus as the word of God. So unless you want a quadrinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit and Bible, you're going to, yeah, that's pretty much what I would say. Justice needs to be rethought. If justice is just punitive, and I realize each of these things, by the way, is its own book, but, but I think what I want to do is invite you into a discussion, uh, maybe to grapple a little bit with Gerard's work. Justice cannot just be punitive. If you look at the biblical, the general biblical trend in just, uh, regarding justice, justice is restorative firstly and then it is distributive as in distributive justice uh, like distribution of goods, money, uh, wealth, uh, health care for example. That, that would be a biblical view of justice not let's find reasons to celebrate that a whole bunch of culture goes to hell for example. Sacrifice. Um, my one of my big pet hates is penal substitutionary atonement, which is the dominant theory of atonement in, in Protestant Christianity. Remember, Protestant Christianity is the smallest one, smallest sort of stream. The dominant view of atonement is one that is more likely called Christus Victor. It's the idea that God does not demand Jesus' death. When Jesus says, I want to do the Father's will, not my own, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not saying God's will is that he dies. God's will, if you use these strong terms, is that he responds in a way that is loving and non-violent. That's the difficult thing to do. 
That's really hard. It's easy to respond in retaliate, like retaliatory violence, but that's just a mirror image of the violence that's been done to you. So again, that's a whole, I, I think we need to rethink sacrifice. God does not demand sacrifice. If you see that he does, chances are you're just mimicking a pagan model of how sacrifice works. Another thing that needs to be rethought is culture. So one of the big things Gerard does is he links culture and violence and he says, well look, most of the time culture is formed according to violence. And that includes our own culture. That's a, that's a difficult thing to grapple with. There are two ways that culture can be formed. The one is according to scapegoating, where we expel someone in order to unify. And you can look at this pretty much anywhere. This is how it works. Another way to do it is to welcome someone from the outside inside and to act in so and live in solidarity with that person. To live in solidarity, essentially, with the victim. So, another way to re is thing that I've got to rethink was the nature of conversion. Is conversion having a subjective experience of the Holy Spirit, for example? And I just don't think it is. At least not predominantly. I think the main sign of conversion is that people side with victims and refuse to participate in victimary systems. In systemic violence, even okay, Re resisting that sort of violence, violence structure. Mission. What is the mission of the church, for example? I think again, it is to seek those who have been victimized and to step in to help. If our, if church structures are just there to make rich people feel good about being rich. You're not dealing with Christianity anymore. You're dealing with a form of paganism. It's got Christian language, but it's probably not Christian. Uh, and then doctrines. So I've al already mentioned atonement. I want to just wipe out a whole bunch of things. So <laughs> just raise a, a few questions. So atonement can't be that violent system. Viol and by the way, penal substitutionary atonement is referred to by hardcore reformed theologians as violent atonement. They put it right out there, and I think they need to get their heads read. The second thing that I think we need to rethink is our conception of hell, which is mostly formed in our culture according to Dante and not according to the Second Temple Juda Judaism, or at least the, the understanding that it had in those early days. If hell is just a place where people go to suffer forever and ever and ever, we have a violent retribute of God who is a moral monster in every sense of that, uh, that phrase. And I think that's something that needs to be radically rethought. And this is the sort of stuff that Gerard does. So I realize probably a few of you have some ruffled feathers, which is okay. I'm not here presenting a final view on things. I can't do that. I've, I've had uh, 35 minutes, more or less, to, to just broadly sketch the kind of terrain that Gerard is dealing with. What he does though is he invites, and what I'm trying to do is also invite a conversation. Invite like, well maybe we can look at these again from a slightly different lens. If the main problem in the Bible is violence, and that violence again can be symbolic, it can also be systemic, it can be literal. There are violences in our culture. If that is the main problem in the Bible, 
we need to also start wondering how we ourselves participate in those very same violent struggles. And this is probably why I like Pope Francis so much, because he, he steps right in there and he says, fundamentalism is not Christian. It is not even vaguely religious in any sort of pure sense. It's just a bunch of people being angry and looking for ways to assert their own egotism. So I hope this has at least stimulated some thought. And now we have a few moments for questions. And I hope it's been helpful. I just want to ask you, can you just summarize um, in, a, in a few sentences, um, how does Jesus deal specifically with the scapegoating mechanism? Okay. Or, or his, um, his life but also his crucifixion and his resurrection. Yeah. I think it, it grapples with it in different ways. Okay, so I'm going to take, uh, so how does Jesus deal with the scapegoating mechanism? Uh, that, that's, again, I could probably say yeah. a lot. Yeah. I'm going to focus on a few things. So one of the things he does is he highlights it. Uh, he, he asserts, for example, a lot of his little sayings, his little aphorisms deal with uh, turning things upside down. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. There's this idea that, the, I mean, the last shall be first could be read, read as a historical term. The victim that was always last in line, the one that was, was always chased away, they are now at the center of the picture. Why do they need to be at the center of the picture? Because we need to be confronted with our own violence and with the ways that we have participated in scapegoating. The other, so I'm going to take that as an example. He does this also in uh, the Beatitudes, blessed or the poor in spirit, that for example. The other way he does it is to step into the place of the victim. So I spoke about how we need to rethink culture and that culture needs to be solidarity with the victim. He does more than that. He steps into the place of the victim and allows himself to be victimized. But because the story is told from his perspective, always on his side, the whole of history turns upside down. And I really mean this. We, we use the word sacrifice differently than sacrificing to the gods. We use it in the sense of self-giving. And this is very significant. The reason we do that, and it doesn't ma matter if you're a Christian or an atheist, the word means something different because there was a massive historical turn where Jesus exposed this this sort of sacrificial, uh, sacrificial victimary mechanism. So I think those are the two dominant ways. You could also look at, uh, at the, the resurrection as a, an affirmation of his innocence. And you'll notice the resurrection stories are not stories of how Jesus came back and said, you people killed me, or to his disciples, you abandoned me, I have every right to retaliate. He doesn't. He goes, do you have any fish? <laughs> That's his question. It's kind of, so it's, it's a very, uh, there's, there's a lot to say, but, but do you see that, that kind of um, thing that's happening? He's turning the expected picture completely on its head. And I think that needs to be done more. I mean, if, Christi if your Christianity isn't upside down, there's something wrong with it. I'm just curious to know how it ties in with sin as an original sin. I think it's, it's kind of also what was last thing, what ends the cycle of, of, of violence, you know, if, if, if we end up at a, at a point of catharsis and then eventually crisis comes again, so obviously there's some kind of cycle happening, but at the same time, 
what entered, because obviously Jesus had to die, but what you're saying is that, that even that was an act of violence, it wasn't maybe necessary. But my theology says to me, you know, we needed him to die so that we could deal with sin. So yeah. how does that go? The, I think this is the hard part of the story. The story, expo- so I've talked about the story can be a mask or it can be a mirror. How do you deal with a problem if you don't know it? And if the whole of human culture previously thought violence is fine, ganging up against people is fine, if that's the whole story that people know, someone needs to enact the opposite. And by the way, theory, like what I'm saying here, is not going to help. Theory is only one half of the thing. You have to, it needs to be an enacted, performed, real embodied thing for it to have any effect. What is original sin? It begins with rivalry. That's one of the ways that you can read the story in Genesis, that, uh, that the serpent sets up a rivalry between Eve and God, Eve and Adam. That story is way more complicated than people think it is, but anyway. So it sets up a rivalry with, with Eve and God. That's the start. That rivalry is then continued to Cain and Abel. Murder happens because of that. The original sin is violence. And so I think it's so interesting that a lot of the, the kind of focuses on virtues or Christian virtues are inward piety. And I'm not in any way saying that that is unimportant. But the, the outworking of that inward piety should be at firstly, confession, a recognition of a personal uh, responsibility, a, an admission that I'm not that perfect. I've also gossiped about people, for example. I've taken part in this violence and scapegoating system. And Jesus shows that to people. And it's so scary when that story, that story of Jesus not retaliating, not acting out in violence, becomes a way for some people to say, well, these people are in because they confess Jesus as Lord and those are out because they're atheists. Or, as the church has done more recently, because they're gay. That is appalling. That a story of including everyone can become something that excludes even more people than it did before. So, that, so what I think is that it's an embodied experience. It in many ways literally turns history upside down. We, we see things very differently now. Our culture is so aware of victimization, and the weird thing is, it's often people who are not within the church who are more aware of it. The story, in in a weird sort of way, has had more of an an effect on people who are not Christians than on people within the church. Because the church, in a number of ways, and it's not everyone, of course it's not. Uh, I think most of us have experienced a lot of love and support from church-going folks, but it's we need a kind of a recognition that if the church is about in-group support and not outreach, there's a problem. I don't know if that, that probably doesn't answer everything, but it's, so much it's, it's a start.
Okay. Um, let me put. Okay. So the question is: Is there really, is there an opposition maybe between the conversion as being a subjective experience of the Holy Spirit and siding with the victims? Does that make sense? Is that okay? So, is there an opposition? As I said. Well, I'm, I'm going to go quite radical here, which I, I can do because I'm speaking. Anyway, uh, and you don't have to agree with it. That's kind of nice. It's uh, one of the benefits of being a human being. You don't have to agree with everything. But what I would say is the trouble with prioritizing the conversion experience is that you already in that moment exclude a whole bunch of people who don't have that experience. And we live in a, in a culture of complexity and plurality more than ever before. And people like Jesus, but don't have a subjective conversion experience, like a subjective experience that there is a God, for instance. So I, I'm saying that is, that is it, it's fine. It's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing in any way, but I think it is seriously problematic. If you go to a, it's a pick the... Pentecostals, like the, go to a service and have like a really amazing so-called spiritual experience, but you're still part of a system that is inherently violent. That is not conversion. You are not turning around, which is what conversion means. You're still with the stream. So that experience may have just been like you, you had a really nice meal and now the vibe is cool. Okay? Maybe what we need is to first, first have a genuine awareness, and I think that's what it is, an awareness of people who have been marginalized, excluded, treated with violence, and act in a way that genuinely reaches out to those people. If you have a subjective experience of the Holy Spirit along with that, that's brilliant, wonderful. But that is not afforded to everyone. Uh, and I think if, if you just... Uh, if you know people who don't have that experience, you will know that that's true. And if you link that to Calvin's idea that only certain people are allowed that experience. Yeah. Um, yeah well, Cal so, John Calvin's theology is probably the most mm -hmm. violent theology we have. Calvin was himself implicated in the murder of a man after he wrote his institutes. Okay, so, massive problems. <laughs> Calvin was a very sophisticated, very clever, legal pagan with Christian language. And I know that, that that should be as offensive as it sounds because it is there. If you actually grapple with Calvin's work, you will realize just how violent his work is. So his doctrine of predestination, and by the way, there are so many Christians who have problems with that. And I think it's good. At least some people are awake. Okay? The, um, the problem with predestination is that God predestines some for eternal life and some for eternal conscious torment. Hell is a punitive space for Calvin. And is it the majority of people that get saved in Calvin's books? No. God predestines that most people end up in hell. To not have the subject. To not have the subjective experience. They cannot. It's just impossible. So if you follow... Calvinism is just universalism with hell included. 
God predestines everyone for a set fate. Okay, so it's just okay. That's it's not a simplification. That's actually there in His institute. Okay, so I think the trouble is we need to have a Christianity, I guess, that is open enough to genuinely include everyone. Belonging needs to precede believing. Because I think that's the, the, the thing that I've encountered, that you have to sign the terms and conditions, like the Apple account, whatever. You sign the terms and conditions, and then you're in, and then you go, but I don't agree with the terms and conditions. There's something wrong with them. That was my experience. My experience was I was in, and then I figured them out. I, and because I'm an intellectual, I tend to spend a lot more time figuring that, uh, things out than I'm than is necessarily good for me, but I look at that stuff and I go, but it's so problematic, it's so violent, it is so unloving, you can't, you can't believe that God is love if you're a Calvinist, you really can't, you can believe that he is vindictive and violent, and the bit Yana's face, like he has two, two wills, which is by the way something that John Piper argues for, God has two completely separate wills and they can contradict. So in, in that view, God cannot be one. He can be schizophrenic, that's okay. But the God I believe in is a God who is one, who is genuinely loving towards people, who genuinely includes people. I think this is good news. This sounds to me like better news than a lot of what I was fed when I was uh, growing up in the church. Yes. The one, the one turned to Jesus, yeah. and the other didn't. Explain that to me from a violent perspective. Well, I think that's very interesting. The, the, the guy, okay, and there are two stories. In the one, I can't remember which one, in one of the Gospels, both of them deride Jesus. In the other one, they have differing opinions. But the significance of the one is that the one embraces, still keeps on embracing his violence he still retaliates against the system that is crucifying him. By the way, that system is evil. It's a terrible system. Um, and I, the thing that I, I have problems with is often that God is equated with that system. God wanted Jesus to die. Well, then he's like the Roman Empire. Um, in that story of the one turning to Jesus and saying, um, "I'm basically, I'm on your side, he is saying, whatever you stand for, it's way better than anything else I've encountered. I'm on your side. That And Jesus saying, you'll be in paradise with me, is a, an ex... I mean, th that can be theologized till the cows come home, but I think it, I, re I read it as him saying, that is an awareness of the kingdom. That is, that is, the, that is the kingdom being present to, to human beings. But what about the other person? There's a, you know, the There isn't. So you want you want to keep hell as as. No, I'm looking at what what happens with the other story. I don't know. That's one of the <laughs> things that's also great is I really don't know. The other story. The other story. The other story leads to an enormous amount of speculation. What other story? The other the The other guy rejects Jesus. That's is that Wendy? Is that what you're saying? So. So you're asking what happens to him when he dies? Yeah. You know, it's a case of there's, there's a violent story on all three cases. What? Yeah. And so there are three different stories. 
There are three. Okay, so what I would say, in a, to put it very briefly, we've got very little time. So, is that I think that vi that violence is we can choose. Okay, I don't know what it meant for him. I, d I can't tell you because I don't know what happens when we die. There may be nothing. I don't know. Okay, I like I hope. I certainly hope. And I think that that is something that we, we can hold on to, our subjective experience of like, this is what I hope will happen. But I know what it means for me. And I think a lot of the narratives of the, in the Bible are there to probe, to ask questions. What does this mean for you? For me it means, I think I'd like to side with the guy who isn't going to choose violence forever and ever and ever. So it, I know that's unsatisfactory and it's supposed to be. Um, in the early church, there was certain uh, spheres of pacifism, like, for instance, the Cappadocia Church, which yes. is a very pacifistic church in itself, um, but then on a totally different uh, leg, the 21st century scapegoats, uh, Saddam Hussein and Martha Gandhi. Yes. What about them? Well, I'm just putting it out there. Well, I mean, they're there. What, what is interesting to me, I'm, I'm going to use a... A lot of the rhetoric around scapegoating people like Saddam Hussein or scapegoating Gandhi, the rhetoric is rooted in misreading the Christian narrative. And what I, I do find fascinating is that it's, it's like we, we will cling to our defaults. It's an amazing thing about humanity. What is our default is like we'll tend to find things to confirm that. That's not my approach. <laughs> I, I think it's a, a bit sad and egotistic. I think the approach that we need to, to take is one that goes, what is my default and what seems to be genuinely something that transcends this default? So Luther, for example, was at the beginning, great. Towards the end, a complete racist and anti-Semite. His anti-Semitism had an enormously evil consequence. Hitler used it to justify killing Jews. It comes out of Protestantism. Okay, so, so we want to say we're innocent. We're innocent. No, we're not. We're just as guilty as the Nazis, basically, if we participate in that same system. I think that Gandhi was one of the brilliant people who said, I like your Jesus, it's the Christians that I'm not so fond of. Um, and what he was doing there, he was going, well, I see the way that Jesus acts, and I see you Christians tending, and I'm, I'm reading into Gandhi, he doesn't say this specifically, but I see you tending to embrace the bloodbath of revelation, and not the pacifism and the non-violence of Jesus. Jesus is the answer in many ways, is the question, as I've often said, in the center of the story. Revelation does not get the final word. The crucifixion does. So why Paul comes back to the crucifixion. What does that mean? How would you contain a violent evil man? It's a good question. What kind of violent evil man? Well, so, so I'm, 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 saying, I'm, I'm, I'm asleep at night and somebody comes into my home and threatens to rape my wife. Look, I have, the, I have the chance to kill him to prevent that. I've been, a, an evil man. Yeah. I've been in a situation that is 
not entirely unlike uh, uh, what you're saying. And nonviolence is the ideal. I do not think absolute pacifism is possible here. I think sometimes you need to retaliate for the sake of defense. To say that, like, so one of the things that's happened in this last week is as the United Kingdom is going, let's bomb Syria to get rid of ISIS. Because in history, we've seen that when you bomb your enemies, everything calms down, right? I think there's a lot of complexity in that question. But I do think restraint is absolutely fine, and I do think sometimes because of your commitment to nonviolence, you may need to respond in a way that is defensive. Responding in a way that is overtly attacking and violent, to me, you can call it many things, and maybe it is a sort of a solution. Well, you kill your enemies, but it's still murder, and it's still not Christian. So, I, the state, by the way, I mean, like, you, you know this from an economic point of view, the state is established through violence. How does colonialism work? You step into a country and you take over with lovely, kind words. <laughs> no, wait. It's something else. Yeah. I, I just think you just suggested readings. Um, I didn't find anything with reference there around the of culture. Do you have any particular suggestions? Uh, around what of culture? Sorry. Culture. Your, your topic of culture. Oh, yes. What you suggested readings. Um, Gerard's theory is actually a theory of culture. So if you, if you read any of those, I, I've suggested them in order, uh, where are they? Um, can I have a look? Okay, so James Warren, Compassion or Apocalypse is a really, really good introduction to Gerard. I feel like he, he covers all the main territory uh, in a way that's accessible without being shallow. I think that's cool. So Michael Harden, he's got a book called The Jesus Driven Life, which is a parody of The Purpose Driven Life, for obvious reasons. The Purpose Driven Shack of Jesus, or Jabez. Jabez, I think. Purpose Driven Shack of Jabez would be a, a good book title. Anyway, that's also, that's sort of more uh, theological, and I, I would say it sort of has a slightly more, uh, more of a slant to, towards uh, spiritual formation. So that's probably a little bit less on the culture side. James Allison, Jesus the Forgiving Victim, masterful. It's a catechism. He's a, he's a Catholic, uh, Catholic priest, so he's got a really brilliant handle on theology. And then Saved from Sacrifice, Mark, uh, S. Mark Heim, Saved from Sacrifice, that's, that's, a, that's basically where the atonement issue gets dealt with extensively. And I would just recommend, this is just a good recommendation. When you encounter something new, like this, or newish. I hope it's new to you. Uh, it was kind of a revelation. Like when, when I read this, it felt like my the rug was being pulled out of under my feet in a really good way. Um, it's good to just dig deeper. Don't presume, especially from what I've said, that you've you've got the whole picture. Um, Pete Haynes just raised a very very provocative and interesting question. That's the kind of question that it would be good to go to this theory with. Um, a question of, well, then what do we do with, with discipline and punishment and these kinds of things? Uh, theory of culture, I think the most in-depth uh, thing on culture itself, on anthropology, is Gerard's book, Violence and the Sacred. It's called Violence. I think that I've mentioned that at the top of the notes. Uh, yeah, Violence and the Sacred is, got, is, is, is where he goes through human history and tries to explain how, how this theory applies to the origins of culture.
that is all we have time for. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank, which yeah, I, I hope it's been a, been a good introduction. That's because that's all that it was. Thank you, Duncan.